This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 792, Flashback, X-Men, The Trial of Gambit. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. This is episode 792. It's a flashback episode to X-Men, The Trial of Gambit. Specifically, I'm talking about the, uh, the I don't even know how recent this trade paperback is, but uh, it's a trade paperback called X-Men, The Trial of Gambit, collecting Uncanny X-Men 341 to 350 and minus 1, and X-Men uh, 62 to 64 and minus 1, uh, written by the collective group of Scott Lobdell, Ben Rabb, Steve Siegel, and illustrated by Joe Madrera, Melvin Ruby, Brian Hitch, Chris Bacalo, Bachelo, Andy Smith, and Carlos Pacheco. That is quite the team. Um, so I was to do a little flashback. I was, it was interesting. The other day I was looking at, uh, I was about to jump in the car for a, a relatively quick drive, like 20, 30 minute drive. And uh, I was just looking quickly on my bookshelf for some X-Men related books that might appeal to my son and something that, you know, I used to really enjoy. Um, so I always loved this kind of period of the X-Men. It was very early on in my X-Men reading. Um, so it's one of those kind of formative periods. Um, it may or may not actually be all that good, but I kind of don't care because again, there's just something about those first comics that you're really getting into books. And it's always been interesting to me that my first real appreciation of comics came later than a lot of people. Um, you know, I, I didn't read comics when I was a kid. I, I saw a few comics here and there. They never really, I think, grabbed my attention. I think when the X-Men animated series started in 92, that definitely started something. But I wasn't really reading comics yet. Um, so, you know, this particular trade collects uh, issues that start in February 97 as the cover date, which would have been December 96. So I would have been 13 years old. So I started getting into X-Men, like, on a regular monthly basis. I started uh, buying with issue 332. Uh, so this was only nine issues later. So this is, again, still in that first year, that honeymoon period. And, again, I've talked about it before, how I started buying at such a weird period. You know, I started buying uh, with an issue with, you know, Wolverine not having a nose and being all feral. And... And uh, the next issue, you have the first appearance, I believe, I'm trying to remember my chronology, first appearance of Bastion and the first, uh, you know, Operation Zero Tolerance was first mentioned as a thing. And then the issue after that, you have, um, and it's interesting, of those issues, I don't believe Joe Mad does uh, the artwork in either of them. And then right after that, you have uh, Joe Mad coming back with issue th- uh, 334, which was uh, the Juggernaut coming to the X-Mansion, and then we're right into Onslaught. Um, which I, when I think back, I'm trying to remember, like I was buying on the newsstand and then issue 335, I don't think I could find. And my mom picked it up for me at a comic book store uh, that was near her work. And it was so funny because back in the day, like, again, I wasn't close to one. I, I, eventually I would realize that there was a comic book store that I was maybe a 25 minute walk well, for an adult away. So maybe a little farther when I was 13, 14 years old. Um, and I would start to buy there and that's where I would start to go regularly. Uh, but once in a while I'd miss issues and my mom would go to this comic book store near her house, sorry, near her work, I should say. And uh, I remember, you know, she'd go in with like a list and she'd, she'd bring my books home with me and they were always bagged and boarded. And I remember the store I went to uh, never uh, taped them shut. Um, it was always just kind of open. And it was back when, I'm trying to remember, but I'm pretty sure it was like a double, like these days I find like when, usually when I go to my local store, when they bag and board, um, it's one of the ones where it just has the one end. 
I don't know if that makes any sense, but like the one end that kind of goes up on the plastic so you can pull it down and, and tape it. Whereas these were double ends, as far as I remember, except for some of the issues. I'm trying to remember. I, I don't really remember that well. I feel like, because I have so many bags and boards that don't shut and or like aren't... I have to go through my collection and remember why and how some of these books happened. It's so weird. It's one of those things I don't really think about. And when I think about it, I'm like, what? Anyways, um, anyways, I remember getting Uncanny X-Men 335 with like a special Onslaught sticker on it. I don't know if I still have that bag and board. For a long time, I was such an anal retentive bastard that I would... Uh, when I took a bunch of issues out, I would write a little piece of paper and scrawl it and put it in so I'd remember that that's the case it came out of. Like like it mattered which bag and board it came out of. But when I was younger, it really did for some reason. It was like a thing. So I'd, I would have – so once in a while when I'm going through issues and I'll pull them out and I'll see these little pieces of paper. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's back when I gave a shit about stuff like that. But it was so early on because originally like I just had a small stack of comics, very small. Like, my son probably has more comics now because I buy him – you know. Uncle Screw, what do I buy him? I bought him Sonic, and he's up to issue like 27, 28. He probably has more comics now than I had when I was like 13 or 14 years old. And he has them in bags and board, although he doesn't really treat them with the most care, but they're still in the packaging, which, to be honest, I don't need to be giving to him. But I do it anyway, because it's just so ingrained in me that that's what you do, even though I don't know why. Um, side note, he started reading like What If comics, because for a while, they'd, as part of the True Believer story, um, program at, uh, at Marvel, you, I would come across these really cheap you know, $1 reprints of old What If issues, so I just like, he's got a bunch of those, I picked up a bunch of those uh, True Believers books, because I just thought, you oh, know, this would be fun, maybe Zach will read them. He's got like a ton of these, and so like now he like loves the, you know, the few What If issues he has. We're going through this big X-Men, uh, sorry, Spider-Man Chronicle book, and uh, he sees, you know, What If number one, and and like he sees some of these like listed in the back of the True Believers as well. Anyways, it's so interesting. What? Anyways, my point was when I first started reading, I wasn't even getting bags and boards because um, I didn't really know what to do that yet. And so I just had like a stack of issues kind of on top of each other inside a bookcase. Um, this big blue bookcase I had that was metal, and it was just kind of on this one shelf. And so like they were probably obviously you know ended up getting a little slanted and wasn't the best place to keep them. But at the time I didn't know any better. That's just where I did. I didn't have any boxes yet. When I first started boxing comics, I put them in tomato boxes. Like even to this day, I still have banker boxes. But I had tomato boxes for a long time. And I remember because I got them because my former babysitter who had moved out of town, very close family friend now, um, we're still close. Um, she worked at a subway when she moved out of Toronto and moved to Niagara Falls. Her her husband used to work as a TTC fare collector, and so he retired. And but I guess they you know, still needed some money coming in, and so he started working at the Niagara Casino, and she started working at a Subway. And so they would get these tomato boxes, and that's how I collected my comics for years before I finally replaced them with much nicer looking uh, banker boxes, which could also hold a little bit more. But for years, I think it was probably within the last ten where I finally got rid of my last tomato box because um, I had them for so long, and I, some of them I had like notes and stuff scribbled inside of like I remember I used to keep I don't remember what it was but there was something I was trying to keep private and uh, so I was on the inside of a bank of a tomato box that no one would ever look for because you know who's looking in my comics but anyways I'm <laughs> I'm way off the field although that's really the point with these flashback episodes just to kind of see where my mind takes me um, so 1996 uh, Christmas I would have been 13 years old and we have this great cover by Joe Mad and it's uh, if you actually look at it the perspective doesn't work 
But as a kid, I didn't care. And again, it's one of those things where as an adult, you can kind of see things that maybe as a kid, everything just looked cool and awesome. But really, when you have the shot of Gladiator, Gladiator looks like he's flying towards you, but it, really he should be flying towards uh, Cannonball. And Cannonball is coming away from us. So that definitely something's wrong with the perspective. That being said, like the, the, the action, the intensity can really be found everywhere on this page. Like you have, you know, the rocketing nature of Sam of Sam uh, Guthrie, or otherwise known as Cannonball. You can see like a gritted face. You see the fist raised, and then you also see like a Gladiator flying towards him. Like it looks like a, such an awesome, awesome cover. And it's interesting to think that you know, two years, two or three years down the line, you have. Um, fighting gladiator and it was done by andy kubert and he has some brilliant covers there but so interesting how gladiator is drawn differently and and similar yet different in terms of still having the physicality but the detail is so different because joe mad had different focus on details and you see that a lot in the issue where you know you have other pencilers with adding a lot more details in their pencils which is them fleshed out in the inks. And then you have someone like Joe Matt, and it feels like there's a lot more restraint, um, and they're not doing an excessive amount of lines. And then nowhere is this potentially more evident than in some of the face work, um, which there, there's a lot more kind of space within um, the details of the pencils. Um, again, I'm not, a, I'm not an artist, so if I speak and it sounds stupid, that's why. I could just say what I like. Um, so I, my son was picking up, so I, I gave him this volume, and I had to go somewhere. I was, I was dropped off somewhere, and I came home later. I was like, oh, did you flip through it at all? I was like, yeah, I looked through it. It was pretty cool. And I was like, well, what, you know, what was the first thing you saw? And he's telling me about this issue. He's like, well, there's a bunch of people there. And I'm like, is there a Christmas tree? Because I'm thinking, I think it starts at 341. He's like, yeah, there's a Christmas tree. And I'm like, instantly, I'm a kid again. And I remember exactly what he's talking about, because he's trying to describe to me what's happening to this issue. And so like, as a kid... Like, I don't know who I, – I guess at this point I would have watched the X-Men animated series. I know who was who Cannonball was – sorry, not Cannonball, uh, Gladiator was. I was probably still early enough that I didn't really know Cannonball. And it's interesting now because my Cannonball, the one I think of, is the one in X-Men where he's the kind of the new recruit and not – the more typical, especially artistically speaking, in terms of his physicality, the classic version of Cannonball, the kind of lanky guy, the way that he was portrayed all the time in New Mutants, is not the one I initially became acquainted with. Because again, you always kind of remember your first and the first rendition of certain characters, and mine is Cannonball, uh, looking like you know this this more typical character and not the much more iconic, not iconic, maybe more iconic, more dramatic and uh, unique looking version of Cannonball that's usually seen in New Mutants, etc. But that's not the version I was acquainted with. Also, it's interesting that my version of Bishop, when I first started reading these comics, he did not have the long hair. He had the short hair. Um, so again, I became acquainted with him in the comics uh, after the animated series, but spent a lot more time, obviously, with the character, reading all these issues over and over again. So I became very well acquainted with, you know, this very short hair version. Um, this is again a weird period because you have a version of Gambit, uh, sorry, a version of Magneto known as Joseph, and so like this is a character that means something to me. And so like when they brought him back not that long ago and gave him kind of a villainous turn kind of irked me because I remembered him, you know, being a hero and he went out a hero in Magneto war. And again, the late nineties to me are a period where everyone were talking, everyone talks about the excesses of the nineties to me as someone who lived through the latter half of the comics, uh, and not as much in the earlier half. I think the excesses are more to be found in the, in the early half. 
and that a lot of the issues with pouches and the the weird leather jackets that everyone matches and all that kind of stuff, I think a lot of that's true of the early to mid-90s, and then there becomes a point where it starts to change. And this isn't quite at that, maybe at that point yet. And I think you get there with the late 90s where I think a lot of books were really good and really enjoyable. And were they all great? No, but no means. But I think that they had started to get away from some of the Sturm und Drang of the late, I swear, the early 90s period and started becoming different. And the X-Men period for me is definitely one of them where, you know, they weren't what the early 90s were anymore. They were starting to change. Um, I, was, I love I love this issue. It's got a lot of character moments. This is Scarlet Bell taking a moment. Uh, there's a great, um, very subtle appearance of the Punisher, which I always liked because I remember seeing that and being like, huh? Who's that guy? And then a few issues later, someone's like mentioning in the letters column, back when letters columns were really a thing. Um, yeah, like I love this issue, seeing Cannibal fight against, um, you know, someone like Imperial Guard, uh, sorry, the leader of the Imperial Guard, Gladiator, someone who really shouldn't be able to take on is just really a fun, big fight. In, in and amongst this, you have a lot more of the character moments like Rogue and Joseph's um, burgeoning relationship, uh, seeing how, how they're developing. And the end of the issue, kind of, you send the team that's all kind of in plain clothes into, into space to, uh, you know, defeat some big bad. And that's, you know, a pretty cool issue. Uh, the next issue is funny because um, issue 342 has got a very cool cover of Joseph in on like an asteroid with a magnetic field. He's in a caution we've never seen before. Very cool looking. And then when you flip the page in the trade, you have a very, what I remember, a very rare variant cover. Maybe it wasn't actually. But I remember all, like, again, in this period reading Wizard Comics and seeing this all, this issue always listed as uh, being this expensive variant or at least a very unique variant because it's Rogue in her Shi'ar mining costume. Um, and a, a cool cover, you know, it says Rogue Squadron. I don't think it's necessarily better than the uh, the regular cover, but it was always, the you know, kind of unique and different. And uh, I always remember the first page, and you have this great shot of Beast. You could tell that, like, there's something's going on. He's, like, um, using, like, his claws to come, not even his claws, his nails to, like, rip through whatever he sur- surfaces on. He's yelling out, did I miss something? And uh, you have this perspective where it's very forced and you can tell that, you know, there's either there's a lot of um, air, you know, blasting against him or something is going on. And, uh, yeah, you flip the page and suddenly they're in space. There's a lot of um, velocity and it's great to kind of see how all the characters are kind of being knocked backwards. Um, Again, so much acting by Joe Mad here to really kind of make you believe and sell the moment that you understand that something crazy is happening, that all these characters are kind of fighting to keep their composure. Um, just looks so awesome. And it's this it begins this big storyline where you suddenly have the X-Men in, um, are in space and they're all in these weird Shi'ar mining outfits and they, you know, learn about the phalanxes, uh, you know, taking over the Shi'ar empire. What's crazy to me is that this arc is, I think three issues long. Like, if this was done in modern comics, this would be, like, a year and a half. Like, well, or even something like Annihilation Conquest, where it was literally six issues plus, like, what, uh, three, four-issue miniseries and a few issues of Nova. Like, already that's more than 12, what, 15 issues? Well, hold on. Let me do the math. 12, 6, uh, 18, over 20, 21 issues. Um, whereas this is three issues and it's a big, bold storyline. Like, you know, has big ramifications and, um, you know, it's supposed to, you know, really deal with a huge, 
event happening in share space, and yet it's what three issues, and it's crazy, and then it's done, and that's it, and it spins characters off like you have this burgeoning relationship between Deathbird and Bishop, and I can't even remember everything that ends up happening with them, but you know it's just so crazy to me that you read something like this, and it's so condensed. I really enjoy it. You got some great phalanx uh, stuff by Joe Mad. They really push how these characters are portrayed in space. Um, I also liked the different looks of the, of the X-Men characters in these new outfits, which, you know, was, again, felt like a very X-Men thing to do, um, that you would kind of have everyone uh, temporarily in different outfits, and now they got to find a way to get home. Um, you have issue 345 in this trade, which is um, <laughs> so funny to me in retrospect, because you have this big kind of menacing character in shadow says, who is this? He could be the next, could he be the next X-Man or is he their greatest foe? And he's holding Magneto's helmet and he ends up becoming the character known as uh, maggot. And, um, I don't know if you know this, but did not become the biggest villain that they'd ever, uh, faced. Um, and it's all about, you know, this epilogue issue of everyone being in Shi'ar. It's around the Shi'ar homeworld. And it's all about the, you know, the team trying to get home and then everything kind of goes kablooey. And then in the trade, you jump over to X-Men, so instead of getting the next issue, you go to X-Men first. And this was my first interaction ever with Shang-Chi, the Master of Kung Fu. Long before I knew anything about the legal rights and how long his book had existed back in the day, um, this is my first in, uh, actual interaction with the character. I'd already been introduced to Iron Fist because I had been reading Maximum Carnage, some issues here and there. And I knew that Iron Fist was there, and he was a martial arts character. That's about it. That would have been about three or four years before this. Uh, so now we've got Shang-Chi. And again, I knew nothing about this character. Um, I didn't know about his backstory. knew nothing. But I really enjoyed this. Uh, you have uh, Ben Rabb actually scripting the issue uh, by with a plot by Scott Lobdell. And you have um, Carlos Pacheco entering the, the book as the new X-Men penciler. And I just love Pacheco's artwork at this point. There's just something so vibrant to it. Um, loved how um, Shang-Chi was written. Uh, loved how now this is again a really weird period for Wolverine because his claws are out of control, gigantic. It doesn't make sense. They're bone. Wolverine just looks like a like just absolutely everything's turned up to eleven in terms of how crazy large he looks. At times, the choreography of the scenes doesn't always make sense. But uh, you have the X Men, the you know a bunch of about five X Men at this point. So it's Wolverine, Storm, Cannonball, um, Jean Grey, and am I missing someone? I think that maybe that's it. Um, Sorry, let's see, it's Cyclops, Wolverine, Cannonball, Jean, and Storm. Okay, there is five of them. Um, teaming up with Shang-Chi. Um, it's all about you know trying to find an elixir for the legacy virus. They end up going up against um, a sub- the return of Marvel's deadliest villain, which ends up being, or one of Marvel's deadliest villains, ends up being none other than uh, the Kingpin. You also have you know the X-Men kind of team up briefly with Shang- um, sorry, um uh, Sebastian Shaw, who at this point had come back from the dead. Um, it was so weird to see the Kingpin here, and at the time I felt like he must have been off the table forever. I think he was off the table for like two or three years. Um, but at the time, they definitely played it up, and it was weird to see him you know, show up in an X-Men book and not somewhere else. You also see Bastion, who again, at, at this point, I had seen him in a bunch of the X-Books from that first issue I, I had read to he was also in Uncanny X-Men 337, which was the big aftermath issue from after the onslaught. So you had all this stuff going on. And then I remember at the end of issue 64, you have the X-Men about to be attacked by Operation Zero Tolerance, um, which is something I also love, um, which is collected in its own hardcover. And then this trade, you, you just like back in the day, you got flashback Uncanny X-Men uh, minus one, 
and it's called uh, The Boy Who Saw Tomorrow. By, uh, let's see, Scott Lobdell wrote it with Brian Hitch uh, doing pencils, and this is a, you know, um, a story about the past, and it's interesting that the first three or four pages are just kind of fluff. Like, they're not really important. They're about a character who is basically Stanley talking to the reader, and again, as a kid, you don't know that this isn't Stanley actually writing it, and it's all about, you know, this tale that happens long before the X-Men or at least long before X-Men number one, and it's all about, at this time, supposed to build up to the idea of the Twelve, which is this big mystery that was going on at the time. And I always loved that cool idea. And I remember reading articles about who were the Twelve, and then you had an issue like this that was starting to stoke that idea, which I really enjoyed. Um, in the trade, you actually had the variant cover, which I don't remember ever seeing before. And then you have, you know, again, this is a little bit disorienting in this trade, is that you have X-Men number one, sorry, number minus one, which comes after X-Men 65, which is all about, you know, the death of the dream. So you have the last page of X-Men 65 is here, and then you go into this version of Stanley talking to, and then you have a this, um, you know, um, prelude story by Scott Lobdell and Carlos Pacheco, which looks great. It's all about, you know, again, the early days of, uh, you know, Magneto and Xavier and the beginnings of their kind of falling out, etc. It's really well done, but again, it, it feels so askance with what's really going on in this volume, especially. Um, but again, it's an interesting collection here because it's kind of moving chronologically, but ignoring some of the X Men stuff, except for the stuff that's been orphaned, um, which up until this point, which was now integrated into here. Then you have issue Uncanny X Men three forty six, which again is already in the Operation Zero Tolerance hardcover, but it kind of needed to be here because otherwise, you just have this weird kind of uh, missing issue. And this was. I guess the first time that Joe Matt had actually drawn uh, Spider-Man, and I loved his Spider-Man here. I also loved his Jameson. His Jameson never looked as jacked and cool and badass as he did here. And neither did Robbie Robinson, who looks like he's been benching like an insane degree. Uh, we have some great shots of Peter as Spider-Man in this issue. You have him going up against uh, Mero and Callisto, and Mero ends up being a character who's going to matter a lot. Um, only a few months after this, um, as he ends up becoming a major you know, character who becomes part of the X-Men. But here, we didn't know that yet. Um, you know, she was just kind of a character showing up who had survived being almost killed by Storm. Uh, I'm trying to think how many issues before, like 22? Because I guess she was in 325 when she was quote-unquote dead. And then you have this interlude, which is supposed to be, you know, Gambit on a different planet, and they really end up playing this completely differently, which feels disingenuous at the, t- you know, at the time you think they're on some crazy uh, off-world planet. It ends up not being the case at all, and it's kind of frustrating. Um, but uh, what was I reading? There was an issue... Uh, there was an issue of something where someone crash-landed... Oh, it was in the Green Lantern 80th anniversary. And it was all about Hal Jordan dropping and not knowing if he's... like in, He thinks he's on an alien world. He doesn't remember how he got there... And he's got no charge to his ring. He has enough energy to send three messages. So he records his three messages, and then the you know his, his ring fades, and he realizes he can breathe. And then he like falls over a you know a partition, and he realizes he's he's on Earth, and he's going to have to take Major Crow for this. And it kind of feels like this, but this that was played for laughs in a fun way, and this is not. Um, this issue definitely has one of my favorite Jameson moments where Bastion basically comes to him and gives him all this information about, you know, running an anti-mutant storyline and, uh, you, you know, very bravely have Jameson basically say, screw it, I'm not doing this. And, uh, he lights all this information on fire. Again, such a cool Jameson moment. And, uh, I've always 
liked it, and it was always found it interesting that one of my favorite Jameson moments is here. Uh, you also have Jason, um, sorry, Henry Peter Gyrick, who at the time, again, I'm coming off the X-Men animated series, that was my only interpretation of the character. So I'm thinking that that character is basically the way he is in the animated series, not the, you know, long-time foil of the Avengers. For many years after this, I would still think he was an X character, not an Avengers character first. So it was interesting, again, how you don't always realize, you know, how certain things are going. Then you have X, X-Men, Uncanny X-Men 347. So you have uh, Gambit versus, you know, these two kind of weird bounty hunter characters that Gambit seems to know, which is so weird that they like these weird characters kind of show up for no reason. You got the, again, more about uh, Mero and um, you understand who she is and, uh, her connection to, you know, having previously been in a cable comic as a younger child, you have more about Maggot. Um, and then you realize that the X-Men are on Earth and they're in this, I guess, the Savage Land and they are confronted by the nanny. And then you move into X-Men, Uncanny X-Men 348, which has a great cover with uh, Gambit and Rogue on it. And they've been split. They're divided. They fall. Um, again, at this time, you know, they're you know, they had a falling out and they're trying to, you know, kind of get back together. And, uh, she's kind of moving away from Joseph and more towards, uh, Gambit. At the same time, you have, um, you know, Beast is trying to kind of figure out where they are as well and what's going on. And you have a great moment. And so it's been conjectured whether or not Gambit and Rogue sleep in this issue. Cause at the very end, um, you know, her powers are negated and they're together and they're alone and just a great sequence um, just of them hugging and everything is kind of black silhouetted around them. And you don't actually know what happens here. Um, and I kind of like that you don't know, but we don't know. And then you have issue uh, 349, which is a kid. It's so interesting. Again, at the time, I don't think I appreciated Bachelot's artwork. Um, you know, I'm, I'm really endo- enjoying this whole run by Joe Mad, and suddenly Bachelot's doing the art. And it was such a tonal shift that I think as a kid, I really didn't like it or appreciate it. Um, again, more about, you know, the confinement of these characters and you also have, I guess Maggot ends up kind of, uh, being abducted as well. Or is that here? Or is that the next issue? can't even remember cause, uh, but you have more about Joseph and everyone. Anyways, it leads up to the big issue 350. Now 350, I've talked about with Scott Abdel. I think he had not as much involvement as maybe it says on the page. I can't really remember. Um, or I guess Lovedell didn't do anything. Yeah, Steve Siegel did the script here, or at least is credited for it, with Joe Mad doing the art, with Andy Smith on pencils. Um, some excellent artwork in this issue. Always loved the big uh, gatefold cover, um, which had like prismatic ink on it. It was like a little holographic. I don't even remember exactly how you want to call it. Um, and this is where the big kind of question about what did Gambit do in his past that Rogue has been haunted by and he's going to finally be paid, you know, he's going to have to pay for his sins. And basically that we find out that he was involved in the mutant massacre. He let, you know, was hired by Sinister and he kind of brought together the Marauders and he brought them to the tunnels. And then when he realized that they were murdering Morlocks, he saved more, um, a marrow. Um, although we don't know it's marrow yet. And, but he did, you know, try to stop it and save them. And the X-Men aren't going to forgive him and they leave him in the Antarctic, which really kind of is condemning him to death. But the big, uh, reveal at the end of the issue is that Eric the Red is, uh, you know, putting them on trial. We don't know which version of Eric the Red this is. And it turns out it's actually Magneto. And which means who the hell is Joseph, which was a big deal at the time. Um, in terms of ancillary content at the end of the issue, you got, you know, a wizard cover with Wolverine from this period. You get, um, 
uh, Carlos Pacheco cover from Marvel Vision, which was the Marvel official Marvel fan magazine, which I always really enjoyed, um, which has Beast and uh, Iceman on it. You've got um, you know a, a story from that issue all about Carlos Pacheco on X Men. I think it's like three or four pages. Um, you have other stuff from X Marvel Vision talking about the unca- upcoming at that time, Uncanny X Men three fifty. You got a house ad uh, all about Carlos Pacheco taking on the X Men, and you see Shang Chi and just promoting issues sixty two to sixty four. Um, again, you have a whole kind of uh, house ad on you know, and you thought they were feared, hated and feared on Earth, and kind of promoting that in um, Uncanny three forty two to three forty four, the X Men are going to be back in space. You have the flashback month announcement that ran through all the titles, kind of explaining what this was going to be. Or this is from Spring ninety seven, so announcing that flashback month was coming up, um, which was again a big kind of house ad at the time, to leading up to this. And then you have all these different uh, smaller retail ads. Uh, that I remember seeing everywhere, all about you know the trial of Gambit was coming up and and Uncanny X Men three fifty, uh, promoting you know where were you when Magneto was born X Men minus one, um, you got some bullet- bullpen bulletins from the time you have a, a cool Operation Zero Tolerance promotional artwork um, by Joe Mad, which is interesting because he didn't even really do anything with Operation Zero Tolerance proper, and then uh, the last page you have some of the original kind of uh, penciled art uh, from this volume. Anyways, um. Really enjoyed this stuff. Um, again, I was kind of the perfect age. I was 13 years old. I loved editorial boxes. I loved seeing, you know, finding out more about this world that I was reading and enjoying. Um, I was loving the artwork by Joe Mad. It was kind of it was the, a great entry point for art. Uh, it was very expressive, very easy to get into. It wasn't super, you know, clunky or complicated pencil work. Um, the amount of story that they wedge into some of these issues is kind of incredible. When you look at the amount of story you get in issues nowadays, um, where you don't get nearly as much going on and yeah, you might read a six issues and you read some of these issues and there's so much content and so much packed in and subplots. And I, I miss that the most is that subplot idea that, you know, they were playing, they were just do, doing a monthly story of an ongoing serial, but they weren't you know, part of a dedicated like six act structure or, or six issue structure, I should say. So you had subplots that would simmer for a while before they'd actually end up mattering. And I kind of like that. Um, you know, I think that's what comic books always did really well is that you had these ongoing threads, whereas now because they quote unquote write for the trade, you have less of that and more, you know, it's punctuated in chunks. And sometimes that's better if you're reading it as a trade later, but you know, there's just something about that ongoing that thing to give you the ongoing fix to keep coming back for all these subplots and some writers really did it well some didn't and but you know i think more often than not a lot of people did do it well or at least figured out a way to make it work even if they didn't always have an exact plan anyways that has been my flashback discussion of uncanny x-men the trial of gambit again it's a it's a fun and enjoyable trade i you know I'm a big fan of this period, so I'm very biased when I say, yeah, pick it up, give it a shot. You can email me at comicshenanigans at gmail.com. I have been your host, Adam Chapman. And uh, you can rate and review the show on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and listen to us on Stitcher. Thanks again for listening, and we will catch you next time as we get closer and closer to episode 800, which is coming out in less than a month now. Ooh, I should probably get on that, probably get on uh, recording some content for that episode. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Bye-bye.